Again, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of you that are here with us. We are delighted to see you in worship with us again. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Isaiah chapter 6. This summer I've been just picking out texts that are challenging to me and encouraging to me. And this morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah 6, which to me is one of the most powerful texts in the Old Testament. That is a text that has um, changed me and transformed me just about as much as any other text in the Old Testament. And um, it's, it's Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's vision of the Lord. Now last week we looked at the idea of false worship from Isaiah chapter 1. Basically, you can look like you're worshiping all around in every way, but really it is God who looks at our heart, and, and we have to come ready to worship with our hearts open bare before Him. And so this morning we're going to deal not with our struggle with false worship, but with the question of whether or not we worship at all. So today we're going to be looking at Isaiah 6, uh, talking about um, whether or not we fail in worship. Not whether it's false, but whether or not we actually worship at all. Now, the Bible, from front to back, from Genesis, the, the, from the creation, of the, the creation account in Genesis 1, all the way to Revelation chapter 22, um, the Bible, front to back, teaches us over and over again that we were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to worship, enjoy, and to delight in God. To be in a relationship with Him, to delight in Him, and to enjoy Him forever. That's from front to back in the Bible. In fact, in Isaiah 43, um, verses 6 and 7, God says this. He says, Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So the Bible goes on record with the, ultimate, with the answer to the ultimate question, right? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Why was I created? And God answers it without any hesitation. You were created for my glory, to worship and enjoy me. So what God tells us is that you and I were created for the glory of God to worship and enjoy Him. Therefore, worship is the highest purpose of every creature on this planet. Worship is loving and praising God for all of who He is. It's loving Him with all of our affection, all of our heart's affection, all of our mind's attention, with all of our attitudes and our actions. Everything about us is worship. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 19, where, where they write, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The reason the psalmist writes that is because they understand that the, the very meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth are worship before the Lord. There's nothing hidden from him that all of those things should be done in light of who God is for his glory. Psalm 86 says it this way, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So the psalmist there even recognizes that I have to have a posture of thanksgiving, and that everything about my heart is to worship and glorify the Lord, and it's supposed to happen forever. Not just while I walk around this earth, I was created for eternal worship and enjoyment of God. Uh, Paul says it this way in Romans 11. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. 
So all things come from God, they all come through him, and they're all for him. And then he says, to him be glory forever. That God is worthy of worship forever. Now, worship is our purpose. I want you to hear that. Worship is our purpose, but sometimes, for some reason or another, we fail to make it a priority. We fail to make worship the priority of our lives. Now, at that point, we fail to do what we were created to do. I want you to understand that. When we fail to worship, we fail to do what we were created to do. We understand purpose, right? All of our houses are filled with appliances that were created for a purpose. Like if you go home today and your freezer isn't freezing food, but is instead boiling it or cooking it, you will have a malfunctioning appliance. Now, sometimes we not only, sometimes things malfunction, but sometimes we actually use things that were intended for one purpose for another purpose. Like instead of using our lives to glorify God, we use it to make much of ourselves or to make much of something else, and we, we replace its original purpose for something else. Let me tell you a, what I think is a funny story um, of my own childhood. When I was about eight or nine, I watched the movie Mary Poppins for what I think was my first time, the first time I remembered seeing Mary Poppins. And I watched Mary Poppins float across London with an umbrella. And in my mind, I thought, well, an umbrella was created to keep rain off of my head, but apparently it also operates as a flying device. So what I did was I took my dad's favorite golf umbrella. Now, children don't do this. I, I took my dad's favorite golf umbrella, and I got up on the side of the barn, about 10 foot high, and I jumped off with, with umbrella in hand. Now, you can imagine what happened. The umbrella was not created for these kind of physics. Okay, the physics of gravity, 9.8 meters a second squared over the distance. I fell like a, like a load of bricks off the, side of the, off the side of the barn, and I hit the ground. The balloon went this way. Of course, I tell my dad, my dad's asking what's wrong with his umbrella, and I tell him what I did, and I tell him why my knee hurts, and he tells me his, the famous line from John Wayne, if you're going to be dumb, you've got to be tough. Uh, if you're going to jump off the barn with an umbrella, you've got to be tough, son. That's, but you know what I thought? What I thought after that, exper after that experiment was not that the umbrella was wrong, but that I actually just needed a bigger umbrella. And so I didn't learn my lesson. All of us need to understand that that's, this is what I'm, the, the point I'm trying to drive home is if we don't worship God, we are malfunctioning creatures. We are not doing, we are not doing that for which we were created. Um, and so that leads to chaos in our lives. We have to do what we were made to do. So listen to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Um, this is what the Bible tells us. It says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, 
and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now as we go through this text, I want to point out four reasons that we fail to worship. And I want you to take an inventory of your life and ask the question, Is this the issue in my own heart that keeps me from, that keeps me from worshiping as I should before the Lord. So here's the first reason we fail to worship. First, we fail to recognize the majesty of God. The first reason we fail to worship is we fail to recognize the majesty of God. If you look at verses 1 through 4, it is a picture of Isaiah seeing the greatness and glory of the Lord um, in the temple as he goes in. He has a vision of God's glory and greatness. Now, Isaiah says this vision happened in the year that King Uzziah died, the king of Israel. This would place this event between the years 742 and 735 B.C. Now, this vision has to be connected with what we know of King Uzziah. Because King Uzziah did something he shouldn't have done in the temple of the Lord where Isaiah is having this vision. So we read this in 2 Chronicles 26. Um, listen to what happened to King Uzziah. It says this, But when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests and the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. Now listen, though Uzziah was the king of all Israel and had all of the authority that came with being the king of all Israel, he was not a priest. He was a king. And as a king, he had no authority to go in before the Lord to offer incense because he was not a descendant of the son of Aaron and was not consecrated as a priest. And God was teaching Uzziah something about God's glory and majesty and holiness. And that it's in this context that Uzziah has a vision about God's greatness and glory, which leads us to three truths about God's majesty. There are three things here that all of us need to have that need to come to bear on our view of God. First, we see that Isaiah has a vision of God's majestic presence. In verse 1, we see that um, in this picture, you have this picture of God's kingly presence. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, 
the year of the king who was struck with leprosy because he did not view the Lord as majestic and high and holy. He thought he could do something he, shouldn't, he couldn't do. In that year, Uzziah see, uh, sorry, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he sees that the train of his robe fills the temple, and God is sitting on his throne, supremely exalted over all others. In fact, the immensity of God's kingly robe fills the entire temple. God is majestic in his presence. If we were to be in the very presence of God, we would be struck with the beauty and glory and majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king, and he's the king in his temple. No other human king is allowed where God is allowed. And so secondly, he's not only majestic in his presence, he's majestic in his person. In verses 2 and 3, Isaiah has this vision of the seraphim, or these burning ones, these angels who have, two, who have six wings. They have two with which they cover their eyes, two with which they cover their feet, and two with which they fly. And night and day, without ceasing, they worship and praise God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. That is their only job. Jonathan Edwards says that these burning ones, these seraphim, are the, most, are the most blessed and happy creatures in all of existence because they were only created to announce what is absolutely true. Now they were made with with, with they were made uh, they were made for this purpose in absolute perfection to worship God. But even, even as they were created, they still cannot look at God's glory. They cover their eyes. They still do not feel as though they can be in God's presence unadored, so they cover their feet. And all the time, they cry out what, is, what we know of to be the absolute truth of God's glory and majesty, that He is holy, 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 meaning He is completely other and separate from all creation. Cannot be compared to anything else. Cannot be likened to anything else. Which is why the first great commandment is you will have no other gods before me because I am completely separate and other. And the second commandment is you will, make nothing in a, you will make no graven image because there's nothing in all of creation that can actually be likened or compared to me. Not the sun, not the moon, nothing. God is majestic in his person. He is absolutely, transcendently holy and separate. But God is also majestic in his power. As the seraphim announce their, their chant that they've said from the very, very first words of their creation all the way to the end of time, they'll never say anything else. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what they do is when they, when they speak this out, the very threshold of the temple shakes. It fills with smoke before the Lord of hosts. We have to remember that this is the, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power and by his power all things exist and he holds them together and in fact in Genesis 1 he speaks and things that were not have to come into existence by the very word of his power. God is majestic in his presence, his person and his power and one of the reasons we fail to worship is because we do not see God for who he really is. In fact this is just a vision because had Isaiah literally seen the Lord, he would have been destroyed immediately. A.W. Tozer, in his famous book, Knowledge of the Holy, says, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians 
is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. He says the main problem with us is not that our view of God is too high. It's much, much too low. It's much, much too low. And then he goes on to say the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way towards curing them. And here's the point. When you stop and pause and think, you can only come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible, this God who is transcendent in holiness and beauty and glory, He is worthy of all honor and praise and blessing. And the reason that we many times fail to worship is because we don't really believe that God is as glorious as the Bible says He is. Let me just say it this way that even kids can understand. If your God is this big, and you can pull Him out on Sundays and Wednesdays, of course you can ignore Him the rest of the week. He's puny, because He's not God. The God of the Bible is scary. He is not safe. He is not someone we can manipulate or push around or cause to do the things we want Him to do. He's terrifying in His presence. He's glorious, dangerous. God is not here to make you happy. I just read a quote from C.S. Lewis yesterday. C.S. Lewis said, I did, not, I did not follow Jesus because I wanted to be happy. He says, a bottle of pork can make me happy. If you're looking for comfort in religion, then, I, then he says, stay away from Christianity. It's scary. We don't worship because we don't view the majesty of God rightly. Which secondly brings me to the other reason we fail to worship is because we fail to remember the misery of sin. We fail to remember the misery of sin. Look at verse 5. As soon as Isaiah has this picture of God's glory and majesty, this is what Isaiah says. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Listen, I'll give you three reasons that, that sin is miserable. Sin is miserable because of its destruction. This is what sin does. It destroys. Isaiah, when faced with God's incredible holiness, he recognizes immediately that he's ruined and undone. His sin will be his doom. Just like Uzziah, the king who was stricken because he did not view the Lord rightly, Isaiah here is not, he's not happy that he's in God's presence. He is terrified. And he is like, this will destroy me. I am sinful. God be away from me, I'm a sinner. This is the same picture when, when, the, when this person co comes, when, when uh, Peter recognizes who Jesus is for the very first, for one of the very most, one of the most clear moments of Peter's life, and Peter says, stay away from me, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Stay away. You're scary. The point here is that sin destroys. Sin never gives you what it, what it tells you it'll give you. It breaks every promise. But let me tell you what sin does do. It destroys. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with one another. It destroys our relationship with creation. Sin infiltrates everything about us, and it brings destruction. It does not bring life. It does not bring joy. It'll never give you what you think it'll give you. It'll only bring you death. But sin is not, not only miserable because of its destruction, it's miserable because of its defilement. It not only destroys, it defiles. It makes us dirty and unclean. Notice that Isaiah here, he confesses what he knows to be true. In light of God's presence, he is unclean, dirty, defiled, and corrupt. 
He knows he deserves God's judgment. He says, I'm unclean. Now that's amazing, right? Because as a priest, Isaiah was a, a priest and a prophet. Isaiah had to make sure he was ritually clean to go into the temple. He hadn't eaten the wrong foods. He had offered the sacrifices he should offer. So he's ceremonially clean. But when faced with God's blazing glory, he immediately sees himself for what he is. Unclean. Now this reminds me again of my childhood when me and my two brothers and cousins would go play outside and we would go play outside where all the dirt was and we'd play all day and then we would be hot and tired and sweaty and I'd come into my mama's pristinely cleaned kitchen and I'd plop down and dust would fly off of me and my mom would say, son, you're dirty. And I'd be like, no mom, I'm really not. And she'd say, look around. And so in light of my mother's clean kitchen, I could only see my own defilement. No, actually I am kind of dirty, Mom. When I wiped my face with a paper towel, it was brown. It was dusty. And that's the point here. Isaiah, for all of his attempts at being clean, when faced with God's blazing glory, he recognizes his defilement. So sin is miserable because of its defilement. That's what happened. In the presence of pure holiness, he understood who he really was. But sin is also miserable because it brings death. It not only destroys, it not only brings defilement before God, it also brings death. It brings separation, which is the ultimate problem. Isaiah would say over in Isaiah 59, he would say this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face so that He does not hear. He says, that's the problem. Sin separates you from God. It destroys your relationship. It makes you defiled in His presence. And ultimately, it's going to bring you death. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That was the problem. You were dead. That's what sin does in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the point. Now here's my question. We fail to worship because we fail to remember the misery of sin. So here's my question. Do you remember, Christian, what it was like to be separated from God because of your sin? Do you remember what it was like to be lost? Do you remember what it's like living under the burden of your sin and under your conscience? Do you remember that? Do you remember what it was like laying in bed wondering that if you did not wake up, how terrifying it would be to stand in the presence of God in judgment? I remember. I remember what that was like as a 14-year-old boy. I remember having, just knowing that if I died, God would be just to send me to hell because I deserved it. Because I understood for the first time what holiness meant. I remember what it was like knowing that if, if, if I go outside and I get hit by a car, I deserve hell. And God would be wrong not to send me there. Do you remember what that's like? Our failure to worship is often because we have forgotten who God is and we have forgotten who we are apart from His grace. Listen, when we see God for who He is and we remember who we are, worship will be recalibrated. We fail to worship because we fail to remember the misery of sin. Third, we fail, we fail to worship because we fail to reflect on the magnitude 
of salvation. Notice that God acts here in the life of Isaiah. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Notice this, that we were ruined. We were undone. We were destroyed and defiled and separated from God through sin. We were enemies, rebels, and yet God in His grace... He came for us. You see, sin couldn't be swept under the rug. It couldn't have been forgotten. It couldn't have been passed over. No, sin has to be dealt with because God's justice requires satisfaction. Isaiah had to be cleansed. He knew he was defiled. The reason is because God's justice has to be satisfied. God is a good judge, and as a good judge, sin must be dealt with. It must be done away with. God cannot acquit, acquit the guilty. If you are guilty, you must be sentenced accordingly. Which is why the gospel is the greatest news in the world. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. That's the defilement and the destruction and the death. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We're guilty. And then he says, but we are justified, made right, declared not guilty by his grace as a gift. So salvation is a gift of God's grace, he says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus paid the price, we can receive the grace and not God's judgment. Whom God put forth as a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Now listen, this is the reason. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why does that matter? Because if God is just, he can't overlook sin. Think about this, if you, were a ju- if you were, say you come home, and this is a, this is a terrible illustration it, because it's graphic, but this is the truth. Say you were to come home and to find a murderer standing over one of your family members, knife in hand. They are absolutely guilty, absolutely without question. They have committed a heinous act before you against God. And then they were to go, to the, they were to go, they were to be arrested and they were to go to court and the judge would say, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. They're going to go free. I'm going to let them off. Would you think in any universe that that judge was doing what they should do? No. Because he, all of us cry out for justice. We know that sin must be punished. It must be dealt with. God cannot acquit the guilty. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus took our place. Took the wrath we deserve. Took the judgment we earned and now offers us forgiveness by grace in His name. That's the good news of the gospel. And one of the reasons we fail to worship is we don't realize the magnitude of our salvation. We don't realize the chasm between the holiness of God and the wretchedness of man. We think we can actually fix that gap. That's an eternal gap. That is, we have no hope outside of Jesus. 
Listen, God is the one whose justice must be satisfied. And he sent his son Jesus, which later Isaiah would prophesy. And he would say this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's speaking of Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, that's Jesus, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The Father will look upon Jesus, pour out his wrath, and be satisfied. And he says, my servant will make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. That's the hope that we have. We have to recognize the magnitude of our salvation. Then finally, the reason we fail to worship is we fail to respond to the mandate to serve. We fail to respond to the mandate to serve. Listen, after Isaiah is cleansed, listen to what happens in verse 8. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Here's my point. Authentic worship always leads to obedience. If you are a true worshiper and you really understand who God is, who we are, what Jesus has done, it will issue in obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What that means is Jesus is saying that if you treasure me, adore me, and see me as the all-satisfying delight of your soul, you will keep my commandments. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. Worship and obedience go together. Worship for Isaiah was obedience. Here's what that means for us. Worship isn't some emotional high. It's not just singing some song or going to a camp or attending a Bible study. Worship was willing obedience to God's call and command for Isaiah. That's what it was. What good is our worship? Hear me. What good is our worship? What good is your worship? What good is my worship? If our lives are unchanged by the presence and glory of God. What good is it? What good are our worship services? What good are our worship services if the rest of the week we live in sin and disobedience? That demonstrates that you actually aren't, you are failing in what you were created to do. And then obedience leads to service. Notice that after he's cleansed, then he serves, not the other way around. God doesn't cleanse Isaiah through service. No, Isaiah is cleansed and then he is commissioned to service. That's the gospel point. Sin makes Isaiah unfit, undone, and unqualified, but now that he's forgiven and cleansed, now he's commissioned for service. That's the point of the gospel. I don't do in order to be saved. You can't do enough things for God to save you or, to, or you, don't, you don't earn God's favor by your service. No. If your life has been transformed by the grace of God, then you willingly serve knowing that it has no, absolutely no impact on your salvation. Now as I conclude, I want to go back to the passage uh, Pastor Nick mentioned from John 12. John 12, in John 12, John comments on why the Jewish people and the religious leaders did not believe in Jesus. They didn't follow Jesus. In spite of all that Jesus has done, right? In spite of seeing the signs, seeing the miracles, and hearing his teaching, they refused to believe in Jesus. 
And John says that this was to fulfill the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah 6.10 from our passage, which says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then down in verse 42, John makes this statement. Listen, this is so important. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? The answer is Jesus. So what we just read in Isaiah 6 is a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, the king, sitting on his throne. Now here, as I wrap this up, don't lose me. I know I'm a few minutes over. Don't lose me because this is critical to our spiritual lives. When you have a vision of the real Jesus, when you see him in all of his glory by faith, you will be transformed. No one in the Bible, after a real encounter with the living, with the living God, walks away unchanged. Nobody. Some don't believe, like those who walked away from Jesus because they couldn't see him for who he really was. But some did believe. And they gave up everything to follow him. And the question is why? Why did they leave everything to follow Jesus? And the answer is because they saw the light of the glory of Jesus for who he really was. And in light of Jesus, everything in this world and everything this world has to offer in comparison is rubbish. If you could see Jesus for just one second, you would worship him forever because he's worthy of it. So it all comes down to which Jesus are you really following? Is it the Jesus of the Bible or is it a Jesus of your own making? You would give up, if you saw Jesus, you would give up anything for him. And you would go anywhere he told you to go. If you follow a Jesus that calls you into service and you can tell him no, you don't have the Jesus of the Bible. Because when Jesus calls us to service, we obey We obey because obedience becomes our delight. If we follow Jesus and we see him for who he is, then praise and thanksgiving would flow out of you as naturally as breathing, as naturally as talking. But don't you want that? Don't I want that? Doesn't that sound like what Christianity ought to be? And the answer is it is. That is what Christianity is. And it's available to all who have the eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to say, if you don't know Jesus, then like Isaiah, you need to make sure you know who who God is. And in light of his glory and holiness, you need to recognize your sin and you need to come to Jesus because there's no other salvation, there's no other Savior. And you need to respond to Christ. If you're here and you're a believer, I just have to ask you, what keeps you from authentic worship? Have you forgotten the majesty of God? Have you forgotten the misery of sin? Have you forgotten the magnitude of your salvation? And have you responded to the mandate to serve? Listen, we follow Jesus, not to earn anything from him, but because he's worthy of it, because he's glorious. We don't have a debtor's ethic. We have an ethic that says Jesus has paid it all, and I follow him out of love for who he is. And lastly, if you don't have a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. I want to pray for you, and then I'll give you an announcement, and we can go. Father, I pray that you would go with us now, and Father, you would draw near to us. 
Lord, help us to see Jesus for who he is and to follow him um, in light of his glory and his grace. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.